Hello and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode 13 and I kind of wanted this to be another amusing moment because I'm interested in kind of talking about economic value and how we get there. So I've been in some conversations uh, with a, a fellow on Twitter about especially the Austrian theory of economics and I've been rereading some stuff from Father Thomas Devine uh, in his book on, on usury. And he, he focuses on understanding economic value from the Austrian perspective as well. And from this, he derives a way of um, justifying taking usury uh, generally without any of uh, the extrinsic titles that maybe the late scholastics would have relied on. And so this has kind of really gotten me thinking about well, how do we come up with a coherent theory of um, economic value? Because I think uh, the theory that the Austrians put forward is interesting and it appeals oftentimes to Catholics because it is philosophically grounded. So it seems to be arise from deductive reasoning about the human nature and so forth. Um, the issue with it is that, from my perspective at least, uh, first of all, I think it's contrary to Catholic teaching because um, uh, I think it was Innocent X explicitly condemns uh, time preference, which is a central uh, proposition, I guess, of Austrian economics. Um, and he, he condemns it as an excuse for usury. So not that it's not useful, uh, it's not conceptually important in some more narrow region, just that it can't be used as an excuse for usury. So I think therefore Austrian theory from the Catholic perspective has to be uh, constricted. And in a, constricted in a way that I don't think Austrian theory has the uh, internal conceptual framework to justify. So, um, but one of the advantages of, of the way that the Austrians think is they think about it in terms of, of preferences and hierarchies of preference and how then that drives the way we value and behave in the marketplace. So it becomes a, a way of predicting behavior based on how we, uh, this hierarchy of our preferences. So um, the, the issue though I have with this, and this is coming from Father Divine, is that the uh, initial presumption is that economics uh, as a science is concerned with the valuation of goods or, or behaviors. And I, I don't think that's principally true. So. Let me kind of walk through it a little bit. I think economics principally and primarily is concerned with the uh, meeting of human needs and how we go about that. So in this sense, it takes human nature as something fundamental, something axiomatic. So it doesn't try to tell us what human nature is. It doesn't tell us what human needs are. It just takes it as given. And so the first kind of 
because it's concerned with how we meet those needs, especially those material needs, is it has to take human nature as normative for the science. So for example, uh, we do not have an economics of how to acquire poison as food um, because that doesn't actually meet a human need. It doesn't actually feed people. Um, and so the, this human nature becomes the sort of normative ground for those needs, for understanding what those needs are. And so it doesn't consider any needs whatsoever. So we're not considering dog needs or, you know, alligator needs or whatever. We're considering specifically human needs. And it's like, okay, so human nature is, is the grounding. So <clears throat> let's consider how we kind of go about uh, making those economic decisions. Because once you've established the ground of those economic needs, valuation comes on top of that as a, a methodology or framework for understanding how we go about satisfying those needs in a world of scarce resources. And so uh, do, I, do I go and I get water from the well or do I go and get water from the river? Or do I go get an apple or do I go get some wheat for bread and so forth? And so there's valuation then becomes a way of determining which way to go in this world of uh, multiplicity of desires or needs and then a multiplicity of goods that could potentially meet those needs and goods that are scarce and that we have to go and acquire. So at a fundamental level, and this, is, this has to do with our biological constitution. So when we perceive something, um, and this is kind of getting into perception and epistemology, which I think is, is an important point with respect to the Austrian theory. So when we, when we sense something, so we, we see color, we hear sound, so forth, um, there is on top of or after that sensation a perceptual judgment about it. And here we kind of start at the animal level. And so when a sheep hears the sound of a wolf's howl, it makes a perceptual judgment about that howl. This is something to be avoided. This is something to run away from. Whereas when it sees you know, the green leaves of grass, this is something to be pursued. This is something that can be food. Now, alternatively, the wolf, when it hears uh, the other wolf's howl, this becomes maybe something to approach, maybe something good. Um, when it sees the grass, because they're not herbivores, it's something to just be ignored and move on. And so they're, based on our biological constitution, uh, there are different ways in which we naturally sort of make these perceptual judgments. And so, you know, in, that's why we have to take human nature as uh, sort of fundamental axiomatic to this question of economics. 
So, but the issue then, so it depends on, first of all, our biological constitution. But second of all, this perceptual judgment can error. So the lamb or the sheep hears the wolf sound and runs away. But if that wolf sound was just a recording of a wolf or maybe it was just the wind or something, that becomes an error in judgment at that perceptual level, even for animals. And so that has consequences. That error has consequences for that animal's ability to meet its needs. So rather than just ignoring it because it's not a real wolf, it then goes off and, um, and runs away. Alternatively, if it doesn't recognize a wolf's howl as a wolf, that also has consequences because then it might be eaten. And so, you know, in the one case, the error might lead to a lack of food. In the other case, the error might lead to becoming food. So that at this perceptual level, there is the possibility of error. And this possibility of error is the ground for not being able to meet those needs that we are seeking. So then we reach this kind of higher rational level where this kind of perceptual judgment is the, um, is the you know, ground or source material for our, our intellectual judgments. So we, we no longer see things just as, oh, this is desirable or this is something I should be afraid of. But we, we distinguish the thing like the grass or the howl as something in itself apart from our desire of it. Because that perceptual judgment is adding something to that sense experience. And so untangling that becomes that first moment of intellectual uh, awareness. And so being able to understand the thing itself and our, our own desires uh, and judgments about it then becomes that first stage of intellection. Now, as we start to look at that thing and understand it and understand our desires and understand our own human nature, we can begin to then structure a hierarchy of, uh, of goods. So should I pursue this or should I pursue this? Well, you know, classically, you know, opportunity cost is a big thing. So if I pursue this one thing, then I, I'm not going to pursue this other thing. And so there's some sort of valuation because there's trade-offs going on. And so you can start thinking about these different trade-offs and, and structuring. Okay, so given the needs I have, I will make a particular judgment. Now, that judgment may be mistaken, just as at the perceptual level. I may be mistaken about that thing. So I may mistake uh, it as having powers that it does not. So, you know, I see some berries out in the wild and I think they're edible, but maybe they're not and they're poisonous and I die because of it. That is, that is an economic error because you 
have tried to acquire something that has failed to meet your needs. And it's based on this error in apprehension. And so your, your desire for it is not itself, uh, is not in and of itself sufficient for determining uh, its value. Now your perception of it, erroneous as it is, will drive your behavior but it's not sufficient to say, um, to, to have said you are correct, or uh, there, there is an error there in your judgment because it doesn't actually meet your need. So the, the possibility of error in our judgments is, is a fundamental grounding for understanding, um, you know, economic errors. And then alternatively, something might be good that we don't realize is good and we fail to acquire it. Um, so, um, and, and so the, the, this is part of this grounding. And so then you have a hierarchy of goods that you're deciding from that uh, internally you've uh, made judgments on, but those judgments maybe are more or less erroneous. And so then you end up misallocating resources, whether your labor or your money or so forth, into acquiring those things. Uh, and then, you know, if we, if we broaden this to a broader social context, this can become, you know, society has misapprehended something and so misallocates those resources to pursue something that doesn't actually meet the needs that we, we seek. And so I would argue that this is the case um, for like gold, because gold doesn't actually meet the need that we think it does. So <clears throat> the most gold is used for, uh, a, well, a lot of gold is used for mainly jewelry. Uh, some of it is used for industrial purposes or uh, medicinal purposes, but a huge quantity, I, th I think when I looked it up, it was something like 40%, <clears throat> is used just on, um, what's it called, uh, just on storage in vaults, like it's just held as gold bullion. And so the reason for that is because it's considered a store of value but it's only considered a store of value because everyone agrees that it's a store of value. Um, and so because everyone agrees it's a store of value, then you can exchange it with other people. Now that's not to say gold doesn't have real properties that are good. It has, uh, it's malleable, it has high electrical and uh, thermal conductivity. Uh, it's extremely durable, it doesn't tarnish easily and so forth, but that is a very limited sort of um, utility. And so the issue then becomes that writ large, there's this misperception about the, the usefulness of gold. And so we end up misallocating resources to its acquisition and then non-use because we're using it for something that's irrelevant. Like we would be wealthier as a society 
if that gold was put to use as um, you know in industrial or industrial or medicinal uses, uh, and then the money that was spent on acquiring and uh, purchasing that gold to hold was used elsewhere, you would have more businesses and more uh, a, a wealthier economy rather than just vaults full of gold. So that's one potential example. Uh, another example would be something like, uh, like blockchain or quantum computing, that there's just this, <clears throat> there's this explosion in uh, excitement about this and people uh, thought these were going to be really amazing things. Resources were allocated to them, thinking that this was going to be the greatest thing ever. And it just hasn't come about. Uh, blockchain continues to be uh, the solution that looks for a problem. Uh, quantum computing continues to be, um, you know, searching for quantum dominance and continuing to fail and so forth. So there's this misallocation of resources, which impoverishes us as an economy. And so, that, so that's an economic error. So I want to focus on that because one of the criticisms that I often get is that you know, there's a distinction between economic value and moral value. And sure, there can be moral error or you know, things that are immoral that are still you know, have economic value. And so that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that from economics as economics, these are errors. So basically the point here is to say that there is a component of economics or of value that is grounded in, or I should say it's grounded in the good, the thing that actually meets our need, but it's grounded in it as arising from it and related to specifically our human constitution. And then our perception of that, of that relation, which is an intellectual perception um, or an intellection, um, our awareness of that is what value is. And so then, based on that judgment, we may more or less pursue something among other many things. And we may be more or less an error with respect to that. Um, and so because it's grounded in the thing, our analysis has to begin with that thing, with the intrinsic properties and, and qualities that it has, the things that it's useful for and the way that it can meet our human needs. And, and so that's why when I was talking about gold, you know, it does have useful properties to it. But what we treat it as, we treat it as valuable because it has this higher level of, um, what should I say? Um, because it's, because everyone else values it, we value it. Uh, and, and that ultimately becomes... Uh, just ungrounded uh, because there's kind of that circularity. Well, I value it because you value it and you value it because I value it. And so it's valuable because we all agree it's valuable rather than it being grounded in the nature of gold itself, which, mind you, is what Aquinas does. 
Aquinas notes uh, the, the properties of gold that make it valuable. And it's in the second part of the second part, um, Article 77, or Question 77, Article 3, I think. Uh, it's 2 or 3. Uh, where he, he talks about, um, you know, for example, if you can sell fake gold, if, if it has the exact same properties, so like if an alchemist takes lead and turns it into gold, but it has the same properties as gold, then yeah, you could sell it as gold. Um, and, and, and okay, so it's, it's grounded in the thing itself. And so there's a few things here. There's a question of, uh, how do we value a thing when we consider it in itself? And so um, we don't consider it just as it is, you know, just sitting there. We consider it as it can do things. So one of the things that goods can do is generate more goods. So an apple tree, you know, you might consider it's good for wood or burning or whatever, but it can generate apples over time. And those apples are valuable too. And so the apple tree is itself something that generates more value. So it's, its value isn't just what it can be consumed as right now, but also value can generate into the future. Now, that power to generate value in the future is something intrinsic to it. So there's something in the nature of the apple tree that allows it to generate apples. And those apples are then valuable goods. So we can use something like time preference, which um, is generally said to be that future goods are not as valuable as present goods. And so this tree will generate goods out into the future and then we can say that those goods out in the future are less valuable than goods here. So if an apple costs a dollar today, you know, an apple that could be generated in a year is maybe only worth 50 cents, for example. Now, conceptually, it's problematic because future things don't actually exist and therefore do not have value. And so conceptually, the way I would rephrase um, at least what's behind the idea of time preference is to say that uh, potential goods are less valuable than actual goods because those apples are in a manner present in the apple tree because it has the power to generate them. And uh, Kajitan makes this point as well. So he talks about... Um, how um, the, the potential versus the actual. And he, he does this, this with respect to, to usury. Um, I won't get into specifics, but he does acknowledge this sort of thinking that uh, you know, a good that exists only in potency is less valuable than a good that exists actually. And I think that's the way from a realist mindset that we can think about um, 
the the value of a tree uh, in light of those in in light of the potential for it to create more apples is the idea of potency now you can come up with all sorts of mathematical ways and sort of abstractly treat those apples as if they exist and apply some mathematics called discounting to figure out some sort of specific value or quantity of value today but really what you're valuing is the tree and its intrinsic power to generate more things so that's what I would argue from a realist mindset. I think the problem with like Austrian economics and really even more broadly, you know, finance and things is the tendency to think that, uh, you know, the tree is valuable because of the future apples rather than the tree is valuable because of its intrinsic properties. Um, and I think a realist mindset has to move to that intrinsic properties. So the next thing though is that there's not just these sort of active potencies, which is the, the ability for it to generate other things, but also passive potencies, it's, you know, to get into the metaphysics. And that's the ability for something to become something else. So for example, um, you know, Iron has a certain value to it because of what it can become. Uh, it can become, you know, a hardened steel. It can become this, that, or the other. Whereas, like, wood can't become necessarily those other things. Like, you can't necessarily come up, well, with some species of wood, you can come up with a pretty sharp knife. But, uh, like, with pine wood, you couldn't, you can't, it doesn't have the same potency to become something else uh, the way that like iron does. Like you can't make a, a sharp knife with that sort of durability uh, the way with, uh, with iron, that you, uh, with pine that you could iron and so forth. And, and so there's a certain sense in which not only this ability to generate things, but it, the ability for a thing to become other things. And, and I've heard the same sort of mistaken thinking as well. Well, what it can become is what is really valuable. And so we're able to determine the value of the thing today because of that future valuable thing. No, no, it's, it's grounded in the thing. The thing has a potential intrinsic to it to become that thing. And it's valuable because of that. So um, that is kind of some of the ways that I've started trying to think about this. Um, and to approach it from a, 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 a sort of metaphysical realism. And, and this impacts finance as well, mind you. Um, because um, I think it only makes sense to apply things like uh, you know, default risk and things like this when you, you realize it's, it's the potency um, because uh, there's a potential for the, the person to pay their premiums, but there's all sorts of impediments that might come along and prevent that. So there's all sorts of things that might prevent the tree from generating fruit like disease or drought or whatever. So those future apples 
that don't exist may never exist. But it, the potential is in the tree right now, independent of any sort of future consideration. Now, because it's potential, you do have to consider all those impediments because it has to eventually be realized. But I think the consideration of those impediments then becomes, uh, it's in relation to that power, that potential being actualized. And so, you know, in finance, I think this is true as well. Like we talk about uh, in insurance, like risk transfer, like an insurance company is taking on the risk of, um, of, the, of the insured. Uh, and in a literal sense, that's not true at all. And I'm, I'm really surprised when I look at the regulations and things that um, I haven't found a real recognition of this. Because um, we, we talk about assumed and seeded risk as if these were uh, not metaphorical and that you're paying for that transfer of risk. Where what's really happening is, well, you have a risk. So my car, for example, it exists. There is a risk that it will, I will get into a wreck at some point. Now, when I get into a wreck, I suffer some sort of financial loss. That risk has been realized. It hasn't been transferred. Now, when I go to the insurer, I say, hey, I've had this realized loss. You need to pay your benefits to me. And they're like, okay, we'll give you your benefits after an investigation, etc. And maybe they don't because of, you know, contractual terms and things like that and what's covered and what's not and so forth. And really, I'm not transferring risk. I am actually paying for a claim against their property that exists right now. Um... And, and, and so I, a lot of this doesn't change necessarily most of the conclusions that we reach, but it reframes the discussion in such a way that we have a better understanding of what's really going on so that we, we can really start judging more fringe cases. So, like, for example, there's all sorts of questions, like, like with gold, for example. Um, we, we can coherently say, well, like, gold is not as valuable as we think it is. And so, it, and, and Bitcoin or blockchain or whatever, we can have those kind of discussions. And so it helps reframe things uh, and helps kind of limit things. And from a usury perspective, it also gives us the opportunity to be able to understand why usury is evil and why it's not justified. Even though, you know, someone may value receiving, you know, 5% a year from a personally secured loan, that it's still, um, like, not economically even sensible. So, um, this went... Uh, longer than I thought, but I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. Um, you know, feedback, comments, anything, leave it down below. I, I appreciate that. And yeah, thank you. Have a great day and I'll see you in the next video.